Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 31 to 34 of The Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 31 The Athenians Take Salamis Salamis an island lying about a mile from Athens and Megara was in the hands of the Megarians. Its position between the two states made it an important one, so the Athenians determined to proclaim war against the Megarians and try to win Salamis for themselves. But the war dragged on so long that the Athenians grew weary, and although the Megarians still held the island, they longed for the war to end. The poor soldiers wished to go home to plough their fields, the rich wished to escape from the hardships of the camp to their own comfortable homes. So at length peace was made, and a law was passed by the Athenians forbidding anyone either to say or to write upon pain of death that Athens ought still to try to win Salamis. There were many citizens both indignant and ashamed that such a law had been passed. Yet lest they should be put to death, they did not dare to say what they thought. Solon was away from Athens when this law was passed, and when he came back from his journey and found that peace had been made while Salamis was still in the hands of the Megarians, He was much displeased. Some time had passed since peace had been made, and Solon knew that the Megarians were not now as strong as they had been when the Athenians gave up fighting. So he determined that he would rouse his countrymen to try again to capture the island. Yet what could he do? He would be put to death if he defied the law, which said that no one must say or write that Athens ought still 
to try to win Salamis. At length, he hit on a strange plan. He pretended that he was mad and persuaded his own family to spread the report that this terrible fate had befallen him. He then wrote some verses, learned them by heart, and ran towards the marketplace, a cap upon his head. In those days, a cap was worn by a man only if he were ill. Solon soon attracted as much attention as he had hoped to do by his strange gestures and by the words he shouted. As the people crowded round him, he jumped on the platform from which heralds were used to announce important tidings and began to recite the verses he had written. I came myself as a herald from lovely Salamis, but with song on my lips instead of common speech, so began the poem. It then went on to blame those who wished no longer to fight, and bade them arise and come to Salamis to win that fair island and undo our shame. As the people listened, they forgot that they had believed Solon was mad, and their hearts were stirred by his words. From that day, so strong became the desire of the people to blot out their disgrace and win Salamis, that the law which had so displeased Solon was repealed. No one had thought of punishing the man who had broken it. The Athenian forces were mustered again, Solon himself being made commander of the troops. His cousin, Pisistratus, went with him to battle, and it was he who succeeded in taking the port of Salamis. In those days... Athens had no fleet. Solon sailed towards Salamis in a ship, but his army followed him in a number of fishing boats. When the Megarians caught sight of the Athenian ship, they sent one of their own vessels to find out the strength of the enemy's fleet. Solon managed to capture this ship, and all on board were taken as prisoners. The captured vessel was then manned with Athenians, and the men were ordered to sail slowly and quietly to the island. Solon, meanwhile, reached the shore, and, landing with his army, at once attacked the Megarians. While the fight still raged, the ship manned by Athenians sailed unnoticed to the port. The soldiers leapt to the ground, sped swiftly to the city, and took it almost before the citizens were aware 
of the presence of the enemy. The island was soon in the hands of the triumphant Athenians, by whom it was held for many long years until Philip of Macedon conquered Greece. To celebrate the victory in after years, an Athenian ship used to sail to the island just as the victorious one had done on the actual battle day. When it reached the shore, a soldier, armed as though for battle, jumped to the ground and with a loud shout ran towards the city where he was met and welcomed by his countrymen. Close to the spot where Solon won this victory, a temple was built and dedicated to the god of battle. Chapter 32 Pisistratus Becomes Tyrant Solon did not expect the laws he made to please each of three parties in Attica, so he was not greatly surprised that while the plain and the coast were more or less content, the hill was dissatisfied and even rebellious. Pisistratus wished to help the hill folk, who were shepherds and herdsmen, and he hoped at the same time to fulfill his own ambition, which was to become tyrant of Athens. Solon did not think that it was good for the state to have a tyrant at its head. He warned the people again and again that Pisistratus would take away their freedom but it was in vain that he spoke. No one would listen to him. One day, as Pisistratus drove in a chariot to the marketplace, the citizens saw, to their horror, that he had been wounded. They crowded round his chariot, begging to be told what had happened. This was what Pisistratus wished. He pointed to his wounds, telling them that the men of the plain had attacked him because he was defending the rights of the poor hill folk. But Pisistratus was deceiving the people, for he had given himself these wounds that he might gain the sympathy of the people and be voted a bodyguard. Lest he should be killed outright by his enemies, the citizens agreed that he should have a guard of fifty clubsmen. At first Pisistratus seemed content with his guard, but after a time he began to add to its number now, one, then after another, until he knew that he was strong enough to defy his enemies. He then seized the Acropolis 
and soon made himself master of the state. The leaders of the plain and the shore were forced to flee, and the people, in spite of the warnings of Solon, were amazed at the cunning and boldness of Pisistratus. Solon himself felt that all he had done for the state was undone when a tyrant ruled at Athens. Old as he now was, he was brave enough to go to the marketplace to unbraid the citizens for their folly in having allowed Pisistratus to deceive them, and to beg them not to lose their freedom without a struggle. You might with ease, he said, have crushed the tyrant in the bud, but nothing now remains but to pluck him up by the roots. It is said that he even begged the people to take up arms against Pisistratus, but they were not bold enough to defy the tyrant. So Solon went home sadly, gathered together his arms, and laid them on the threshold of his house, saying, I have done my part to maintain my country and my laws, and I appeal to others to do likewise. Here is a verse from one of the poems which he wrote at this time. If now you suffer, do not blame the powers, for they are good and all the fault is ours. All the strongholds you put into his hands, and now his slaves must do what he commands. His friends feared that Pisistratus would punish Solon for his bold words and actions, perhaps even take his life, so they begged him to leave the country, but he refused to go. When they asked him why he was not afraid, and to what he trusted to save him from the anger of the tyrant, He answered simply, To my old age. And his trust was well founded, for Pisistratus treated Solon with kindness and respect. He even asked his advice in matters of state. But the overthrow of his reforms was more than the old lawgiver could bear. And two years later, when he was eighty years of age, he died. It is said that by his own wish, his ashes were scattered in Salamis, this island which he had won for Athens. Pisistratus was a good tyrant. For five years he ruled, doing all that he could for the welfare of the state. But his enemies, although they saw that Athens grew more prosperous under his control, were ever plotting to get rid of him. At the end of five years, 
the plain and the coast joined together and succeeded in driving Pisistratus from the city. But Megacles, the leader of the coast, corralled with the plain, and he then offered to help Pisistratus to return to Athens. It was by a strange trick that the Athenians were persuaded once more to allow the tyrant to rule. In one of the villages of Attica, Megacles knew of a woman named Pia, who was taller and more stately than most Greek women. He ordered Pia to be clad in armor, such as was worn by the goddess Athene, and then seating her in his chariot, he drove to Athens. Before the chariot, went a herald to proclaim that the goddess Athene was herself coming to bid them to open their gates to Pisistratus and to restore him to power. The story tells that the Athenians believed that Pia was indeed the goddess and they hastened to obey her behests. Pisistratus was allowed to enter the city and rule it as before. For six years all went well. Then the tyrant quarreled with Megacles, who again joined the plain, and Pisistratus was expelled for the second time. But the tyrant was a patient and persistent man. For ten years he lived in a province called Thrace, keeping in touch all the time with the hill. In 535 BC he was back again in Attica, with no goddess to help him, but with a band of hired soldiers to strengthen his party. The Athenian army was sent against the invaders, but Pisistratus pretended he did not mean to fight. So the Athenians, thinking themselves safe, sat down to their midday meal. Then, while they were eating and drinking, the tyrant fell upon them, scattering them with but little loss on either side. As the Athenians fled, the sons of Pisistratus, Hippias and Hipparchus, rode after them, crying aloud that all who went quietly home would be pardoned. The citizens saw that it was useless to resist, so Pisistratus entered Athens as tyrant for the third time. During the next eight years, Pisistratus devoted himself to making Athens the most beautiful city in the world. He ordered that a new feast should be held in honor of the gods, 
and he began to build a magnificent temple to Zeus, which he did not live to finish. Many learned men were invited to Athens, and poets and historians were encouraged to write and to read their works to the people. It is even said that Pisistratus collected a library, which he urged the citizens to use. But of this we cannot be sure. Then, thinking perhaps that Athens was strong enough to defy her enemies, the tyrant ordered the walls of the city to be pulled down, so that for half a century, Athens, like Sparta, was an unwalled town. In many of the states where tyrants ruled, Pisistratus had formed allies, and he even offered his friendship to Sparta, the state that despised tyrants, the state that despised tyrants and would not allow them to rule Peloponnesus. Pisistratus died in 527 BC and was succeeded by his two sons, Hippias and Hipparchus. Chapter 33 Harmodius and Aristogiton Hippias and Hipparchus were as eager as their father Pisistratus had been to govern Athens well. Nor did they quarrel as to the way in which they could best do this, as brother tyrants might have done. But one day, Hipparchus quarreled with a citizen named Harmodius, and to quarrel with Harmodius meant to make a great enemy of his friend Aristogiton. Harmodius showed that he was angry with Hipparchus, who then used his power as tyrant to punish the citizen. This was unfair, as the quarrel was a private one. The tyrant even refused to allow the sister of Harmodius to carry a basket in the procession of the gods, an insult which the citizen could ill brook. He therefore resolved to revenge himself, and together with Aristogiton, he made a plot to slay not only Hipparchus, but his brother Hippias as well. Only a few friends were told of the plot, which they hoped to carry out on the day of the procession. As it was usual to carry arms at the festival, it would arouse no suspicion if the friends were seen to carry theirs. When the day arrived, Harmodius and Aristogiton appeared at the festival bearing lances, as did the other citizens, 
but to be the more certain of carrying out their plan, they also carried daggers concealed beneath their cloaks. The conspirators wished to kill Hippias outside the city gates while he was arranging the order of the procession. But when they approached the tyrant, he chanced to be talking to one of those who knew of the plot, and the conspirators fled, thinking that Hippias had learned their secret. Hippias was saved, but rushing to the marketplace, the two friends fell upon Hipparchus and killed him. The conspirators expected the citizens to rally round them, but they stood aloof while Harmodius was seized by the guards and put to death. Aristogiton was tortured to make him betray the names of those who knew of the plot, but he too died, steadfastly refusing to speak. Although at first the Athenians paid little attention to what Harmodius and Aristogiton had done and suffered, they began ere long to think of them as heroes who had freed Athens from the rule of one of the tyrants. Perhaps this was because Hippias, frightened by his brother's death, brought hired soldiers into the city, raised the taxes that he might have money with which to pay his mercenaries, and begin to oppress the citizens in many other ways. The discontent of the people encouraged Cleisthenes, the son of Megacles, to put himself at their head and lead them against Hippias. But they were soon crushed by the hired soldiers of the tyrant. Cleisthenes then tried to do by a trick what he had been unable to do by force. He knew that he was liked by the priests at Delphi, for he had given munificent gifts to the temple so he begged them if a Spartan came to consult the oracle, no matter what about, to answer always, Athens must be set free. This the priest promised should be done. The Spartans had been friendly with Pisistratus, and they did not wish to harm his son. But when the oracle's one answer to all their requests was, Athens must be set free, they knew that they must march against the tyrant if they wished their own affairs to prosper. At first they were defeated by the mercenaries of Hippias, but one of their kings then took command of the army and defeated the tyrant, who took refuge in the Acropolis. The citadel would stand a long siege, as Hippias was well aware, 
but he was soon forced to surrender, for his children, whom he was sending secretly out of the country, were captured by Spartans, on condition that their lives should be spared. Hippias promised to leave the state within five days. So the children were released and sailed with Hippias, under a safe conduct, to Asia, where they lived in a small town which had belonged to Pisistratus. Chapter 24 The Law of Ostracism After Cleisthenes has set Athens free from the rule of Hippias, he began to reform the laws and to make Athens a more democratic state than she had yet been. Until now, the Athenians had been divided into four tribes. Cleisthenes split up the four tribes into ten, Each of the ten tribes he then arranged in ten parishes, or demes. In each tribe there were demes made up of the plain, the shore, and the hill. As these demes had to fight together in time of war, the three different parties grew to be friends instead of enemies. And that was why Cleisthenes has arranged the tribes in this way. Instead of making one tribe consist of ten demes of hillmen, and another of ten demes of plain or coastmen, members from the new tribes were sent to the assembly of the people, and to the assembly Cleisthenes gave new powers it could choose its own rulers and punish those who ruled unjustly. It could impose taxes, make war, and settle terms of peace. But all of the laws which Cleisthenes made, the one which will interest you most, is the one called the Law of Ostracism. The word ostracism comes from the Greek ostracon, a shell. In Athens there were often two leaders opposed to one another, but each as powerful as the other. Cleisthenes thought that it would be a good plan to be able to get rid of one of these leaders for a time, and so save the city from civil war which often threatened to overtake it. So he said that when it was necessary to banish one of these leaders, the citizens should meet together, each being given an oyster shell on which to write the name of the man whom he disapproved. If six thousand votes were given against one leader, he was said to be ostracized and was compelled to leave the city within ten days for five 
or perhaps even ten years. His exile was not a disgrace, it was enforced only for the good of the state. When the five or ten years had passed, the leader returned to Athens to hold as high a position as he had held before, and to take possession of his property. The reforms of Cleisthenes displeased the nobles, who wished Athens to be an oligarchy, and they were angry that so much power had been given to the assembly of the people. They said the city would soon be ruined, for how could the people, who were so unaccustomed to so much power, use it well and wisely? But the fears of the nobles were groundless, for from this time Athens grew more prosperous as well as more powerful. She soon had a stronger army, a better fleet, and, as you shall hear, was victorious over her enemies, both by land and by sea. Great writers and sculptors, too, added to the glory of Athens, and made her the most famous city of Greece. Greece. 